Let me invite you to remain standing in confidence of hearing once again from God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Verses 12 through 26 are what we will study together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 861. Our studies through Luke's Gospel continue on this morning. Last week we saw Jesus call His first disciples unto Himself in order that He might make them fishers of men. And today, once again, we will see Him go about revealing and demonstrating His authority as God's Son, the one who ushers in God's kingdom through two specific miraculous healings. So let me go ahead and read our text and then pray once again for our time and then we will begin our study together. Let us hear now, for God indeed is speaking to us through His Word. And while Jesus was in one of the cities... There came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his knee and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles and into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we come to Your Word needing its life. We come to Your Word needing its truth. Many of us are weary. Many of us are weak. Many of us are wandering. So we pray that You would send Your Spirit to minister among us as we need Him to do. 
So help us to hear with eagerness, Lord, we pray, with joy, with hearts of gladness, for you are speaking to us the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would lead us all unto the riches of the glory of your name that is found in him alone. So help us to hear as we should. Help me to preach as I ought, boldly and clearly, as a dying man unto dying people, and let us hear as if this sermon would be our last. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great excitements of going over to my paternal grandparents' home when I was a young child was the fact that they had cable television. And that meant that what we would often do, because they were within walking distance of our home at the time, we'd go early in the morning and spend time either in the morning and the afternoon watching the Cartoon Network or ESPN. And I remember watching then ESPN in the days before it was the undisputed worldwide leader in sports, and it often had to fill airtime with seemingly random athletic events, one of the most common of which was the World's Strongest Man competition. And if you've ever seen this before, you get these amazingly strong men performing these seemingly miraculous feats of strength. A few of the events that I remember, one was the Hercules hold, where you had these two large pillars that were hinged, and a man had to stand between the two of them and hold them for as long as possible until they eventually would fall over. Or my favorite happened to be the yoke walk. There was this large crossbar that was placed on a man's back, and normally two very heavy objects were hanging off either end. Ordinarily for these competitors, it was a refrigerator on each end. And then they had to go a certain set distance with that incredibly heavy weight to show their strength. And then you just kind of would eventually get camera angles shining in on the crowd, and you would see that they were utterly captivated, understandably so, by these feats of strength. And when we come to the Gospels of, G of Jesus Christ, when we come to these four Gospels in our Bible, what we often find is Jesus performing miraculous healings. Miraculous healings that many people today think are nothing less than spiritual feats of strength. Demonstrations of His power. But Luke, as he is working his narrative together, wants us to see these healings of Jesus Christ as more than just mere feats of strength. These are demonstrations and declarations of Jesus' authority as God's Son, who ushers in God's kingdom. So students, think about that with me. What is the difference between power and authority? Is there a difference you know, I suppose we could answer it in a few different ways. One illustration that came to mind uh, this week was it's within all of our power, I believe, to make a State of the Union address before our nation every year, but it's with not within our authority to do so because we have not been elected as the President of the United States. Even within our own denomination, it's within almost all of our power to administer the sacraments on the Lord's Day, but not everyone has been authoritatively commissioned to do that work. It belongs to the teaching elders. There is a distinction between having power and having authority. And what we see in these two healing scenes before us this morning is Jesus' authority once again 
but it's authority that's located as authority over sin. So that's the main idea that we want to discover together this morning, how these two scenes demonstrate and declare Jesus' authority over sin. So in the healing of the leper, we're going to see that he's willing to heal. And the healing of the paralytic, we're going to see that he's able to forgive. Both events uncovering his authority as God's son. So kids, as we're working through this text, see what you can maybe write down or think about, meditate on, about Jesus' authority of the kingdom, that it all belongs to him. So he's willing to heal. Notice again as we look at our passage as it starts in verse 12. We're told that he's in one of the cities, and there came before Jesus a man full of of leprosy. Now you need to know something about leprosy in the ancient Jewish culture to understand the, the full force of what's getting ready to happen in this passage. If you woke up one morning and discovered somewhere on your body an unusual blight or an unusual blotch on your skin, you were supposed to go to the priest. The priest couldn't heal you of your disease, but he could declare what that disease was. And if the priest said, you have leprosy, it was the worst verdict you could ever hear. Because to be a leper in ancient Israel was to be a total reject and outcast from the covenant community. You were kicked out of the covenant community because of your disease. You had to wear essentially a mask over the bottom half of your face in order that you were easily identified as a leper. Your clothes would quickly become tattered, your hair unkempt. No one wanted to be near you. You weren't allowed to be near anyone. You couldn't come within 50 paces of another person. And if another person happened to just not realize you were there and started coming within 50 paces, you had to shout out at the top of your lungs, unclean, unclean. You had no access to the temple, thus no access to God's presence, the worship of God's covenant people. It was absolutely in every way to be kicked out of the covenant community. And you'll notice that this leper has already disobeyed the law because what has he done? He's come to Jesus and fallen down before him. Notice again verse 12. He fell on his face and begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So Jesus does something altogether astonishing himself. You see what happens next? He doesn't, as every Pharisee or priest of the day would have done, rebuked the leper, ran away in as fast of a tizzy as he could possibly get away from this dreaded disease. What does he do? He reaches out and touches him. Now in the ancient Old Testament system of law, to touch a leper was to become a leper yourself. You were ceremonially unclean. You were the one that was now also going to be kicked out of the covenant community. But you notice how the process reverses with Jesus? Where the law of Moses could only exclude, this new covenant law of Christ includes. Because what happens? He touches the leper and he says, I will be clean. And verse 13 tells us, immediately the leprosy left him. And I'm not sure we could fathom this side of history, the degree to which this leper would have leapt for joy at the loss of his leprosy. So the priests, they could diagnose, as I said, leprosy. They couldn't heal it. 
But they had their own kind of pharisaical fear of leprosy, wanting to stay away from it as as much as they could, referring to lepers as the dead walking. They would say of another rabbi, if he could heal leprosy, he can make the dead rise. To heal a leper in that world was akin to making someone born again. And this is what Jesus has done with this leper. He's made him new. It's as though to come to Christ is indeed to come into the new creation. And do you see how it's even this magnificent window into the gospel of Jesus Christ? But what does the Bible tell us about our state? We're born in sin, strangers to God, outcasts to the community, no access whatsoever to the ordinances, promises, and worship of God. We're rejects, cut off completely from His mercy. And yet Christ comes, lives perfectly, dies on the cross, and it's there. He's cut off so that we might be welcomed in. Three days later, he rises from the grave, he ascends into heaven, and what does he pour out upon his church? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes to sanctify us, bestow God's grace upon us, and regenerate us, which means what? Make us born again. That very experience of the leper, from a total reject in God's economy, to now welcomed into the family of God is the very experience of all that come to Christ in faith. It's to experience the dawning of the new creation if you would but turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. He too can can touch you through the power of His Word and Spirit and make you new and send you off restored. Because again, of course, Jesus came not merely to heal the outside, but to restore the inner man. The inner man that he now goes to command, look at verse 14, he charged this newly cleansed man to tell no one. So pause right there. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, we thought about this peculiar thing that happens in the Gospels where Jesus will perform a miraculous exorcism, a miraculous healing that everyone in the culture wants to shout from the rooftops and he says, don't tell anybody. Keep quiet. Don't even tell your family members. And we have to ask the question, why does he do that? Well, it's because he wants to define the coming kingdom on its proper terms. To let loose the news that here comes the miraculous healer is to get everyone to think that the kingdom of God is wrapped up within physical healing and spiritual exorcisms of demons. Which, of course, the kingdom of God does that. But we said a few weeks ago, those are commercials for the kingdom not the main event of the kingdom itself. It was going to take time, we'll see it as the gospel develops, for Jesus to be able to demonstrate and teach how the kingdom comes through the death of a suffering servant. And it brings with it all of the spiritual benefits and blessings that we could ever want or even imagine. So he tells the leper to tell no one, and you'll notice as the verse continues in verse 14, but to go and show yourself to the priest. And make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. So the priest could also not just diagnose the leprosy. He could now say, oh, you don't have it anymore. And it was going to be a testimony to the priesthood, but I would also think also to the society in which this person would have lived. This person is now clean. 
He is now able to come once again into the covenant community. Welcome back into their midst. And so this miracle is ultimately a testimony about who Jesus is. He alone has this power that no other priest at the time could even have wanted to have. So great is this Lord Jesus Christ. But Mark's gospel tells us the leper doesn't listen to Jesus and he go talks about it anyway. And so verse 15, you'll see even more the report about Jesus went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. I suppose you don't have to have been in too many churches to understand how verse 15 can so often be the greatest desire of church leaders and pastors. Crowds flocking to teaching and demonstrations of power. That's not necessarily a wrong thing. Isn't it quite stunning how Jesus shuns the popularity in verse 16? Because what does he do? He withdraws to desolate places to pray. People are coming to be healed. Crowds are coming to hear this gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus disappears to pray unto his Father. Surely that has to tell us something about the importance of prayer if the sinless Son of God so valued prayer that He even eschewed the crowds in order to get away to a quiet place to commune with His Father. When was the last time you withdrew to pray? Maybe in the midst of a crazy busy life. What's your first impulse in the midst of the busyness? You know, Martin Luther was once asked about his plans for the next day. And he said, my dear friend, it's just work, work, work. I have to begin the day with three hours of prayer because I have so much work to do. And surely there's something of our Lord's impulse there to value communion with God to such a challenging degree. Because fruitfulness for God, because students always make sure you know this from, from the very early part of your life. Fruitfulness for God comes from dependence on God in prayer. And even for us as a church, may that even challenge us. Fruitfulness for God depends on our prayer life in so many ways. He is willing to heal. Now we're told he's able to forgive. Some of you know the story of Winston Churchill's political career. Maybe you've seen a recent movie that's quite stirring and challenging on that very topic. From 1940 to 1945, he's serving as the prime minister in Great Britain. He's the leader in England fighting against the tyranny of Nazi Germany. So successfully through his eloquent oratory and his powerful speeches, he's galvanizing the Allied forces to resist this enemy of great darkness. And so it's not surprising by the end of World War II in Europe in May of 1945 that Winston Churchill's uh, approval rating stood at 83%. But some of you may know that just over two months later, he was kicked out of office in the popular election. It was this stunning fall from popularity, this rapid decline from the grace of the culture. And I tell you that because right here in chapter 5 of Luke, a narrative joins the overarching one that we've been studying. And it's a narrative that's going to lead to Jesus' rapid fall from the grace of the culture at that time. It's the seeds of a conflict now being sown in this next scene that will lead to his eventual crucifixion 
on the cross. Because notice what we're told is going on in verse 17. One of these days, he was teaching. And Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Luke's kind of signaling unto us a new, new, fresh, miraculous healings about to happen. He's got it in this moment, but he's also signaling unto us some of this conflict. For the first time, the religious leaders from all the surrounding areas are so attracted to Jesus' growing popularity that they decide to show up and see what's going on with this incredible, powerful teacher of God's law. And so kids, think with me. Let's see if we can set the scene as it's told to us in the next couple of verses. You need to picture Jesus sitting in some house. Jesus is largely sitting there, likely sitting there, and he's teaching enormous crowds, standing room only, even surrounding the house, the nearby windows, in order to hear the words that are coming from this master teacher's lips. And four friends have brought their paralyzed friend on a bed to Jesus. They want to bring this friend to Jesus in order that Jesus might heal him. But you can imagine they come walking down the street. They see this incredible throng surrounding the house. And they know quickly there's no way we're going to be able to get our friend to see Jesus. So they begin to look around. How are we going to get him to Jesus? And they spot the roof. Stairs up the side of the house, this flat roof, which was strong. It was often used as like a patio or a deck in the ancient Jewish culture for eating purposes and fellowship purposes. So they take this paralyzed man up onto the roof, and they take out whatever ancient equipment, power tools were available to them, and begin to saw through the roof. Can you imagine what kind of ruckus they would have been hearing as they were listening to Jesus, and above them the roof is being broken into? Mud's falling down, thatch is falling down, wood is falling down, sunshine is breaking through. Surely Jesus himself is quite interested in this ruckus going on over his head. And then at some point into the process, the hole is big enough, the man just drops down right in front of Jesus. Lowered right in front of Jesus. The crowds surely are thinking as they're looking at this man, looking up into the hole and his four friends peeking through as to what's going to happen next, thinking, well, what's Jesus going to say about this whole shenanigan? Is he going to say, hey, can you pull out your wallets and pay back this man for the destruction of his private property? Rebuking them for their just careless interruption of his important teaching. Do you see what he does? He says in verse 20, After seeing their faith, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now think about what these men must have had written across their faces. Surely they're excited. Friends, sins are forgiven. But somewhat mystified, too. We didn't lower him for forgiveness, teacher. Uh, We lowered him for healing. Looking at one another, who is this teacher? Wasn't it so true that so oftentimes what we think we need is not exactly what we really need? That Christ speaks to us at our point of what we really need. And what this gospel is going to prove over and over, if you have seen it in recent weeks, I hope you have, is that the greatest need of mankind is the forgiveness of their sins. So imagine you've got all of these religious leaders occupying this room. Surely dozens and dozens of these men in the corner, somewhat seething, arms crossed, somewhat critical of everything that they're hearing. For notice as they begin to sneer in verse 21, who is this 
who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. Who's this man that acts like he is God? And so what begins now between Jesus and these religious leaders is something like an ancient battle of rabbinical logic. Because notice what Jesus says to them in verse 22 when he perceived their thoughts. I mean, you can even interrupt the story there. It's quite ironic. They're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? Evidently in such a way that Jesus hadn't heard them. Maybe it was just spoken in their mind. And here, does, here goes Jesus doing only what God can do. Perceiving their thoughts. And speaking exactly and pointedly to their objections and saying, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, rise and walk. So students, think about that. Which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven Are you paralyzed man, get up and walk. Do you see the conundrum? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can't prove if they're forgiven or not. Nobody can see that. But for a world who lives by sight and not by faith, healing the man's sins, that's harder. That's something we can see. That's a visible manifestation of authority. So great that you said this man's sins are forgiven, but there's no way we could know that. So what does Jesus end up doing? Look at the verse as it continues in verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you religious leaders and of course everyone listening may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Now he speaks to the man who is paralyzed. I say to you, rise up. Pick up your bed and go home. And up he comes and immediately goes home and surely every face was stunned into silence. He has just used for himself the title, the Son of Man. This title that is so famously spoken of and prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7 that the Messiah would come, this Son of Man, and he would have all authority. And here comes Jesus saying that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. My paralyzed friend, get up and walk. And so begins the seeds of bitterness, resentment, and opposition that will lead to Christ being hung on a tree at Calvary. For he has claimed to be nothing less than God alone. All authority of God belongs to him because he is the God-man. He is the Son of God come to save sinners. And you'll see, of course, what happens as a result. In verse 26, amazement seized them all, and they all glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And I hope when you hear stories, testimonies of someone experiencing Christ's grace, someone being forgiven of their sin because of God's mercy towards them in Christ, that you too are filled with awe, that you too might say within your heart, we have seen and heard about an extraordinary thing, the forgiveness of sin. No greater miracle is there found in this world today than the forgiveness of sins that comes from this man alone. He's willing to heal. 
He's also able to forgive. I'm not sure about you, what you remember from your days in elementary school. I remember lunch, a recess, and show and tell. I'm not sure what that says about my education. It probably says much about my adolescent interests. My greatest memories were being out of the classroom, in the cafeteria, and subsequently playing football or basketball during recess. But if I was in the classroom, my greatest memories were show and tell. I always found it so interesting what students that I had, or peers that I had spent so much time with, weeks or months even, would choose to bring into the class to show and to talk about, reveal their interests, reveal... Uh, their passions, and in so many ways, if you haven't thought about before, the Gospel of Luke is like a divine, spirit-inspired show-and-tell of Jesus Christ. Some scenes are doing more showing, some scenes are doing more telling, but it's all here that we might see and that we might hear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is the Messiah, He is the suffering servant that has come to save sinners. And as we're looking at these two scenes, simple scenes of Christ's authority, and as we begin to even close down our time this morning, I want to meditate on just two things at the end that are in this text and so wonderful for us to see together. The first of which is we need to see Jesus' mercy towards outcasts. We're going to find this out next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study through the chapter. But these scenes are part of a succession of events in Jesus' life and ministry when he is specifically directing his attention towards those people that the society condemns and rejects. A leper, a paralytic, next week, a tax collector. His mercy goes to those that are often forgotten. His mercy goes to those who are outcasts and and rejects. So I wonder if any of you in here this morning feel as though you fit in one of those categories, seem terribly lonely, no one is interested in giving you time, no one is able to understand your passions or your personality. Or maybe you're even part of a group that the world so rejects, which is simply Christians. Demeaning, dejecting towards God's people. Or is it even possible you might be in a church, or coming from a church maybe is better said, where you felt like an outcast. You felt like you didn't belong. Isn't it so often true that one of the great schemes of our great enemy is to convince us that we don't belong and so we should isolate ourselves from God's people? That they would have nothing to do with us if they actually knew what we were really like? Be encouraged from this text that Christ wants everything to do with you. That you can come to him and his mercy belongs to you. And what a challenge it is even us for us as a church To minister Christ's mercy means that we're going to always be building a church that's full of misfits. People that wouldn't belong any other way. But in Jesus Christ, we are family. Outcasts, rejects, misfits, forgotten, all united through faith in Jesus Christ, extending his mercy to each and every one out of the fullness of the spirit he's given to us. You need to see Jesus' mercy for sinners. 
And the second thing you need to see is his suitability to save sinners. His mercy and his suitability. And here's what I mean by suitability. Do you see in verse 13? He's willing. He's willing to heal. Do you see in verse 24? He's able to forgive. He is both willing and able. And understand we have no salvation without both of those things being true. If he's only willing and not able, well, he couldn't achieve salvation for his people. If he's only able but not willing, why would he do it? But here we see in miniature, don't we, that this Savior is full of willingness. This Savior is full of ability. So do you doubt that Jesus can indeed forgive you of your sins? Do you wonder if he actually does have the power to wash away your sin through the power of his blood as though it was white as snow? See, even from our text, he is able. Or maybe the greater temptation you're facing in your life this morning is, does he really want me? Does the King of kings, does the Lord of lords, the God over all the universe have an interest in someone as low and insignificant and normal as me? Does this Savior have any interest in someone like me? See from this text, he does. He does, and he is willing to bring his mercy unto you. And he's able to bring his mercy unto you. For Luke wants us to see this morning that he is indeed willing to heal. He is indeed able to forgive. Because this man, Jesus Christ, has all authority over sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God full of mercy towards us. We thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is powerful, he is able, and he does have all authority. Lord, I do pray for those in this room this morning that may be wondering about these very questions, his willingness, his ability to save, that the Spirit would move among us even now that we might know for sure that he is, and he delights to save sinners such as us. So send your spirit even now to take these simple and small words that I have offered and to magnify them with his eternal power to our good and to your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the next few minutes, we want to continue worshiping.